Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. His grandfather was a U.S. Senator from Kentucky. His father was a Mexican War hero and close friend of Abraham Lincoln. His mother, a relentless behind-the-scenes string puller who remarried to a powerful New York judge. His brother fought for the Confederacy. His sister married their stepbrother, and and he became a Confederate spy who would be murdered by his own son. Who was the man at the center of this family circle? A man who would be wounded four times in some of the war's most critical battles, but lived to old age and wealth in the 20th century? We'll find out from James Huffstadt, author of Lincoln's Bold Lion, The Life and Times of Brigadier General Martin Davis Hardin, on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you once again from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, but not speaking for the university or the University of North Carolina system, of which we are a part, or any other entity, just for myself and my guests, I know will do the same. Well, it's good to be back in the Brewster Building. Classes have resumed here this week after the flooding that followed Hurricane Michael Matthew. I have have two nephews and I mixed their names up. Hurricane Matthew last week, uh, which has closed off the end of the street on which I live uh, with a bridge there being flooded out and caused classes to be uh, canceled all last week. Everything's back uh, more or less to normal. Students are back. Classes are on. Faculty have resumed arguing with one another over how to respond to the marching band members who protested during the last home game by kneeling during the national anthem. 
or how to deal with the faculty member who wants to uh, make a statement by bringing uh, a gun onto campus, which is against the law, that faculty member showed up at the county commission yesterday, apparently, to try to persuade them to get the legislature to change the law and let people bring weapons onto campus. I'm thinking 18 to 21-year-olds, available alcohol away from home for the first time, drug experimentation, hormones, youthful romance and heartbreak, tension over student debt, future jobs, grades. Why not add guns to the mix? What could possibly go wrong? If that does happen, I will be giving every one of my classes an A and locking the door during office hours and communicating by phone only uh, to avoid the, the mayhem that would certainly follow. In brighter news, uh, the sports world, sporting world, is giddy with the news that uh, Greenville, it's not Greenville FC, I forgot what our name is this year, um, FC Greenville, Greenville United, I think that's it, Greenville United, uh, rec soccer team won this weekend, 2-1, to one, uh, bringing our record to 2-0, and oh, and I once again played without getting injured, which is a major success in my book, uh, if I don't score any own goals or get hurt, I figure I've done my job. And so I'm just uh, thrilled to be on a team with some some teammates who know how to score and and I can just stay in the back and watch them do that. So that's been very exciting. The hurricane uh, has brought a lot of trouble to the area. Uh, Obviously the worst are those who lost uh, property or even lives. Uh, Fortunately not here in Greenville. Uh, on a personal note, it's a minor thing, but I'm sorry to report that I was looking forward to the visit of uh, some Civil War talk radio alumni. Uh, Dave Powell, Eric Wittenberg, and others were planning to visit eastern North Carolina this coming weekend, see some of the sites around Kinston and Wise Fork, but those are still underwater, so that got postponed, and uh, we'll just have to do that another another time. And one last history item, I had the opportunity to speak in Greensboro, North Carolina last week at the North Carolina Association of Historians meeting uh, on a panel discussing uh, Governor Charles B. Aycock, uh, governor elected in the year 1900 in North Carolina. We spoke in an auditorium on the campus of UNC Greensboro that used to be called Aycock Auditorium, but they have renamed it under the same impetus that caused ECU to rename its ACOC Residence Hall, the recognition that, that ACOC was a major engine in, in white supremacy and disenfranchising black voters. And when we were done with our presentation, the Q&A from the audience began, and the first question uh, was uh, more or less verbatim, this is for all of you on the stage, can you explain to me what's the difference between you and ISIS? That set us all back for a minute. I, I finally answered, I, I said, well, ISIS is a vicious terrorist organization, and we're a group of thoughtful historians. But I think he was looking for something different, and one of my colleagues on the panel then gave a more uh, appropriate answer, explaining how ISIS tries to destroy history, and we are trying to enhance it, uh, not take names off of buildings to hide them from the past, but build museums, build exhibits about these people so people can really learn about them. 
if you actually learned anything about somebody by having a name on the building, all my students would know who Brewster was of the Brewster building where I'm sitting right now. And I can assure you, having asked them, none of them have a clue, even though they've been in the building hundreds of times. So I'm, I'm skeptical of the educational value of names on buildings. Uh, but enough of that. I'm not skeptical of the educational value of the books that we talk about on Civil War Talk Radio, and there are some good ones coming up in the weeks ahead. Next week, Morgan's Great Raid. We'll learn about John Morgan and his expedition from Kentucky into Ohio. We're talking with David Mowry, who's written several books on the topic. Uh, his appearance will be a listener's suggestion. And your suggestions are always welcome. Please let me know who you'd like to hear from on the show, and we'll see what we can do. The following week, November 2nd, Victoria Bynum, author of uh, The Free State of Jones, a, a book published 10, 10 years ago now, and now the source of a major Hollywood movie, will be with us to talk about what happens when a historian gets her work made into a big-time film. We'll talk about her other work as well. On November 9th, Paul Cahan, or Cahan, we'll find out, uh, it's written about Simon Cameron, the first Secretary of War in the Lincoln administration. A really interesting character, uh, very unselfconscious of his own character faults in, in an almost charming fashion. Be interesting to learn uh, what he, uh, what his biographer has to say. Then on November sixteenth, uh, Guy Hubbs has written about Greensboro, not Greensboro, North Carolina, but Greensboro, Alabama, guarding Greensboro, a Confederate company in the making of a Southern community. Is the book? He's written other books about the the unit and the community. We'll talk about all of them. And by then, it'll be time for Thanksgiving. We'll all happily take a break in November twenty third. Come back and do a few more shows before the winter break. You can find out about all this at www.impedimentsofwar.org, where Mark Gaffney keeps us informed, keeps posting links to the shows, and where you can click on links to Amazon and buy the author's book. The pass-through, click-through helps us out here, helps keep the website alive, and uh, is, is a tangible sign of your interest in the show, which is always a good thing to have. I appreciate the many emails that come in. I try to answer them as quickly as I can. And I especially appreciate contributions to the Civil War Book Fund, which recently I've been actually using for books, shocking as that may sound. Our library uh, continues to wrestle with, with multiple claims on its funds for electronic resources as well as books. There used to be a system where if the book wasn't in the catalog, they'd have a link you could click on, and they would they would go and buy the book and add it to the collection. And now that seems to have disappeared, so it's harder to get them to buy the books that I, I think a university library needs. So sometimes I go and buy them for myself. Uh, and you can help out that addiction at civilwartr at aol.com. Click on the PayPal link there, and... Uh, that is the link, actually, the PayPal link. That's the address. A recurring gift is extremely welcome. Send $5 a month. Forget about it. Feel good every month when you listen to the show and think, I'm helping those guys out and know that I'm using it to buy books or or, or something. Uh, well, let's not talk about uh, filthy lucre. Let's move on to the 19th century and talk about a remarkable character 
almost zealot-like in his connection to all these important people throughout the 1850s, 60s, 70s, Martin Davis Hardin rose to the rank of Brigadier General, but not a lot of people know much about him. And I was one of those people until I read the book. It's written by James T. Huffstadt, who is our guest tonight. Mr. Huffstadt, are you there? Jerry? Yes. Well, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It's a real honor and, and privilege. I'm uh, I'm so pleased that you saw fit to invite me to talk about uh, General Hart. Well, I'm glad glad you're able to do that. And uh, I guess we'll start at the top. What what made you familiar with this uh, character, who most of us didn't know anything about before? Where did you learn about General Hardin? Well, I couldn't pinpoint the exact date, but it had to be, oh, four decades in the past. And uh, I was uh, working on my first book, which was a history of the 11th Illinois Regiment uh, in the Civil War, uh, a unit that my great-grandfather had served with. And uh, I discovered uh, Generals in Blue by Ezra Warner. And uh, Mm -hmm. for those of your listeners who haven't... uh, uh, consulted this wonderful work, or or its companion, uh, Generals in Gray. They're they're missing missing something indeed. And uh, uh, over several years, I ended up uh, reading it. Uh, and uh, and as I did, I came across this man, General Hardin. I'd, I'd never heard of him before. And uh, the uh, let me see. I, I have the book in in front of me, uh, and if you indulge me just a second mm-hmm. here it is the, the phrase that, uh, that caught my eye Hardin embarked upon a combat career in the Civil War which has few parallels in the annals of the army for gallantry, wounds sustained and the uh, obscurity into which he had lapsed a generation before his death and uh, that uh, that haunted me, and uh, I think part of my interest in, in military history, and of course I go back to that first book, which was about my great-grandfather's regiment, is I think these men and women who helped make our country, who helped, uh, who gave their, their lives in many cases, uh, certainly their blood, uh, made great sacrifices, that they should be remembered. And uh, it uh, bothered me that this man who was a, a such sterling character and suffered so much to preserve the Union, uh, was uh, virtually uh, had vanished. And uh, on and off through the years, I would dabble at uh, looking things up. And finally, about eight years ago, I retired from my uh, main uh, career in wildlife conservation, came to Tallahassee, and... Uh, that became my my main goal, and uh, and it uh, proved to be uh, uh, quite a journey, quite a journey. And I came to know this man and, and respect him uh, so much. Uh, it's it's helpful when I'd say it's a good thing when you're writing about somebody that you have uh, a positive feeling about. Certainly, when I'm writing about Abraham Lincoln, I don't have I'm not conflicted about why am I bringing this person to public attention. Uh, uh, I was reading about uh, uh, McQuinney's 
biography of Braxton Bragg, how he, uh, he had to stop after one volume because he just couldn't stand the guy any longer, and uh, <laughs> uh, someone else had to write the second volume. That does happen with some, but this fellow, uh, Hardin, it, it, in some ways it reminds me of, uh, we had on the show a few weeks ago, Mark Dunkelman talking about Patrick Henry Jones, uh, Colonel of the 154th New York and a Brigadier General. And he, too, was well-known in his time and well-known in the Gilded Age, much like uh, Martin Davis Hardin, but likewise almost completely forgotten today. And, and it seemed there may be a whole generation of Civil War uh, leaders and, and uh, notable figures who we don't know much about. Well, that's, that's true. Uh, it makes me uh, recall Walt Whitman. Uh, Walt, uh, and I'm paraphrasing this, I hope I'm doing him uh, some justice, but he said uh, he talks, uh, perhaps it was in his, uh, his uh, Civil War poems, about uh, the unknown hero that we that died, you know, perhaps a, a man in the rank, and performed uh, uh, great deeds of valor, and yet uh, uh, he's... He's forgotten completely. And uh, so I, I see Hardin as representative of that generation and of that uh, that breed of, of man. And uh, we still have them in this country, thank God. They're willing to put their life on the line for, for what the United States represents. Well, the... Uh what makes this person's story particularly interesting is how connected he was to so many other people who we have heard of or do remember. And I'd like to ask you about that. But first, we'll take a short break. We'll come back in just a minute and learn more about the remarkable story of Lincoln's Bold Lion, The Life and Times of Brigadier General Martin Davis Hardin, with our guest, Jim Hufstadt. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. 
That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with James T. Hufstadt, author of Lincoln's Bold Lion, The Life and Times of Brigadier General Martin Davis Hardin. The name Hardin might ring a bell with a few people who've read a biography of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, John Hardin was one of the three notable Whigs of Illinois in the 1840s, along with Lincoln himself and Edward Baker. And the three were agreed they would take turns being the representative or the candidate of the Whig Party for Congress. Uh, Hardin served a term, then uh, went off to fight in Mexico, and Lincoln served a term. So did Martin uh, Hardin, uh, Jim, did Martin Hardin know his father uh, before he went off to Mexico where where he uh, fought and lost his life? Well, that's a a, a tragic aspect of his life. Uh, In uh, the early 1880s, he... Martin Hardin began a, an autobiography, and, it, and uh, there's a, there are 105 uh, handwritten pages uh, at the Chicago Historical Archive there, which I examined, and uh, he bemoaned the fact that uh, he was only 10 when his father had died, and of course, John Hardin had lived an active life. He, he and Lincoln had fought together in the Black Hawk War. Um, John J. Hardin became a general in the militia, uh, and of course he was active in the legislature, uh, Illinois legislature, uh, went to Congress, and uh, so uh, he wasn't at home a lot. Uh, uh, he had memories of him, but he uh, he was saddened that he couldn't really recall his face except when he looked at pictures. Uh, he was only uh, 10 years old, and... Uh, uh, yet he had great respect for his father. I think to understand uh, Mark Hardin or any of the Hardins, you have to realize that uh, the Hardin heritage was uh, very real to them. Uh, and it went back uh, four or five generations, uh, back to a gentleman called Ruffle Shirt Hardin in Kentucky. And although uh, Martin and his sister were born in uh, Jacksonville, Illinois, they were very much Southerners. In fact, I found it uh, great interest that when Martin was a boy, this is his recollection, he was he was taught to despise Northerners as a bunch of uh, money-grubbing clerks, you know, without a sense of honor. And uh, he looked back to his, his uh, ancestry, which went back to uh, John, the original John Hardin, they called him Indian Killer Hardin, he had gone to war, uh, the Lord Lord Dunsmore's war, and carried a bullet from that. He only uh, he was only a boy, carried a bullet all his life, an Indian bullet. And then later during the American Revolution, he was what we would call today a sniper, uh, a marksman for uh, Morgan's riflemen, uh, a historic regiment that fought at the Battle of Saratoga. My wife and I were just up there uh, last month, and I went to the mm-hmm. battlefield. There is a granite uh, a monument there put up by his great-grandson, the Civil War General Martin Hart, to John. And it's uh, on the edge of a plain where the British soldiers had been. 
and the American soldiers that didn't in the woods. And uh, he rarely talked about it. And he was rather uh, ashamed and embarrassed because he felt that it was not war, that it was execution. Uh, they were woodsmen, and they hid behind the trees, and uh, these British soldiers in their scarlet red uniforms were bright targets out there. And uh, uh, I could go on. Uh, if there were, his father died at Buena Vista. His his grandfather uh, fought in the War of 1812, was a, a lawyer, graduate of Transylvania University, a close friend and a political ally of Henry Clay. They both worked to bring Kentucky in as a free state. They failed. But, uh, and on his mother's side, uh, he was related to General Ben Logan, another great figure in the early dark history of Kentucky and uh, a contemporary and, and uh, sometimes friend of Daniel Boone, as was John Hart. Hardin died uh, uh, taking a peace message from George Washington to the uh, tribes north of the Ohio in 1792. He was murdered. Uh, so they remembered and knew these people. It's not surprising. Uh, Martin Hardin's older sister, Ellen, went on to become one of the founders of the Daughters of the American Revolution. So this mm-hmm. is a very real to them. Uh, the history of the United States was in many ways the history of the Hardin and Logan family. So it, it's also not surprising that uh, Martin Hardin uh, went to West Point. How, well, about you know, there's a, this, this is what makes him interesting, and I think it's contradictions that make it interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, as, as you may remember, as a little boy, he was afraid of ghosts, terrified of them. And uh, here he went on to become uh, a very uh, outstanding combat commander in some of the worst battles of the worst war this country has ever seen. Uh but when he was uh, told he was going to West Point, that was not his ambition. He wanted to become a lawyer, and he wanted to go to Brown University. Uh, but he didn't have a choice in that. But he was, uh, it was a different generation, and he did mm-hmm. what his stepfather and mother wanted him to do. But he often said, he said, I have no particular interest or desire to become a soldier. And he said, besides that, uh, I... Uh, have a deficiency in math. I don't think I'll be able to survive the uh, curriculum. But, of course, he did. And he, he performed he, very well as a soldier. Now, he, he met some, obviously, some, some other men who would become Civil War figures of note. Uh, you describe in a couple chapters his adventures out west. Uh, he was in the class of 1859 and uh, spent a couple years uh, in the far west before the war began. I really enjoyed those chapters in particular, the the pictures of the country, of the, the landscape uh, in, in in what was then Indian country, uh, it just sounded like a fascinating opportunity for a young man. I agree with you completely. That was one of my favorite uh, sections of the book. And uh, you have to understand, he was, uh, he was born... Uh, during a, a tumultuous time, an exciting time, uh, and uh, the great push west was ongoing. He grew up in a frontier community in Jacksonville, 
uh, here's a boy who, uh, you know, today they talk about our helicopter parents. He didn't have helicopter parents. Uh, he was uh, free to roam. He rode his pony for fun. He and his other uh, friends would uh, hunt rattlesnakes with sticks and dogs or swim in the, the icy, st- well, the streams uh, on occasion, teeming with water moccasins. And uh, you know, this this was a, a whole different world from the one we know. But then he always wanted to go west. And uh, he uh, was a great uh, admirer of uh, Washington Irving's tales of Captain Bonneville. And, of course, his sister's, at his sister's wedding, Washington Irving uh, was there. And presumably Martin met him at that occasion. And later on his, the first stage of his trip west in 1859 was St. Louis, and he met Captain Bonneville. And uh, then they went up the Missouri River, and luckily uh, he had included uh, some great descriptive passages in his uh, aborted autobiography. And uh, what a, what an adventure it was. And, uh, you know, uh, hunting buffalo and uh, grizzly bears. And uh, there was even a gun duel aboard one of the boats. Uh, a young lieutenant uh, was arguing with the, uh, the uh, not the captain, the pilot, mm-hmm. who was uh, kind of a dictator. And uh, the pilot pulled out a pistol and shot him. I mean, <laughs> this, this was an incredible adventure. Uh, it, it would make a, a great film. And, uh, and he was there. He... He saw it all, I and mean, he saw the the great Western Indian nations uh, in their twilight before they finally uh, their culture was uh, not extinguished, but it certainly uh, uh, you know the the great gory days were soon to end. And he was a great admirer of the Nez Pierce in particular. He thought they uh, they were a noble race. Uh, the the, uh, the idea of this as a movie is very striking. Partly you have the wonderful landscapes and scenes and the battles of the Civil War, but also the characters. You mentioned uh, his sister, Ellen. Uh, she marries their, uh, their, their stepfather's son, uh, their stepbrother, who is superficially charming. But uh, as you describe him, even from, from first acquaintance at age 12, there's something wrong with this guy. Uh, oh, he was a psychotic. Uh, he was a, a terrible, terrible, self-absorbed madman and uh, violent and uh, just, uh, just a nightmare, just a nightmare. And uh, again, the contradictions here, his father was a respected jurist, the chancellor of New York, Reuben Walworth, uh, familiar with many presidents and the other great men of his times. His older brother was converted to Catholicism and was one of the founders of the Paulist order. And here, this uh, youngest son just is a uh, is a Jekyll and Hyde. Incredible, as you know. Later, uh, I'm getting ahead of the story, but uh, when his sister finally decided to uh, to initiate a divorce against this Mansfield Tracy Walworth, who had then ended up uh, living in New York and writing pot boilers. Uh, he uh, he broke into Martin Harden's hotel room. Harden was still recovering from his Civil War wounds, one armed, and this maniac uh, broke into his room and uh, 
threatened him uh, that uh, because Martin was using his uh, legal abilities to uh, to help his sister break away from this uh, this man, then. and uh, ended up uh, Martin uh, pushed the pistol aside and uh, burst from the room, and his brother-in-law and stepbrother is chasing him through the hotel room, waving a pistol, telling him he's going to kill him. Uh, I mean, it's a it's a story right out of the tabloids. It it really is. It's it's an outrageous story. The the Harvard Alumni Association will not thank me for pointing out that this madman was also a Harvard graduate. I believe you said. Uh, well, he wait, he did get a diploma, and I can't, now this is speculation, but uh, other historians have uh, have noted or suspected that. Perhaps his father had a lot to do with that. Uh, Reuben uh, Walworth uh, was a uh, a very influential man with very influential friends, and uh, it it, uh, it may have been uh, more of a gift than anything earned. And and that's my opinion. I, I must say, uh, well, it's a reasonable uh, assumption to make. Uh, Listeners will will be reassured to know I got my Harvard degree the hard way. Uh, uh, I haven't mentioned that in the last several weeks, so I thought I'd better get that in right away. But uh, back to Martin Harden and his career. So he's he goes out west uh, with the army. He, he ends up in about as obscure a place as you can be on the coast of Washington. But the war starts, and he gets called back. Uh, tell us about how he, his initiation into the, uh, the Civil War itself. Well, uh, it, it began uh, very interestingly. He was on a troop ship uh, uh, from California, and uh, there were several uh, Confederate spies, uh, former members of uh, the government in Washington, that were discovered. Uh, and... Uh, that's a story in itself there. It was on the SS or Zeba. And, uh, but anyway, to, uh, to make a, to sum it up, he was an artillery officer, and uh, his first command was in Washington, very near uh, the, uh, the White House and the Capitol. He commanded a company, a regular Army company, I believe it was the 3rd U.S. Artillery Company H, if I recall. And... Uh, it was essentially garrison duty there at first, uh, but he was uh, closely, uh, they were encamped near the Pennsylvania Reserve Division, which became one of the iconic units of the Civil War, and developed some friendships there. And later, with the assistance of uh, of friends in high places, uh, he eventually uh, won command of a regiment, the 12th Pennsylvania Volunteer Infantry, Reserve Infantry. And he took over at the end of the Peninsula Campaign at Harrison's Landing. Uh, he had served in the Peninsula Campaign as uh, an aide-de-camp to uh, General... Uh, well, he wasn't a general then. He was a full colonel, Colonel Henry Hunt, the father of the Union Artillery. And mm-hmm. uh, I think this was uh, probably due to his... Uh, uh, to the help uh, provided by his stepfather uh, and, and his mother, who was a close friend of the Lincoln family and Mary Todd Lincoln, and uh, spent most of the war in Washington, D.C., acting as as her son's lobbyist. Uh, you may find this, as a historian, you may find this of interest, but uh, 
Dr. Joe Kanetch here in Tallahassee, he has a, a Ph.D. in history from Florida State University. He's a friend of mine, and he was kind enough to serve uh, over the past eight years as my unofficial advisor and guide. And at the very beginning of this, he said, Jim, he said, if I were you, I'd look for the political connection. He said, uh, uh, politics was almost always uh, at stake when you were talking about a star, a general star. And uh, as as you know, uh, you can go and look. Uh, uh, Sherman's brother was a senator. In fact, I think the stepbrother was a senator too, wasn't he? Uh, Grant had uh, a congressman, a very influential congressman, uh, behind him. And I'm not saying that these men didn't deserve the uh, the commands that they eventually received, but it uh, you could be a very competent commander, a brave one. And and not win that star, uh, and uh, yeah, that's absolutely uh, true. Yeah, so uh, I got I got lost in my as I babbled <laughs> on there. I got lost where I was going with that. But well, uh, but but look, I'll just add to that that you're absolutely right about politics being a critical factor. And again, the parallel with Patrick Henry Jones, who we talked about a couple weeks ago, uh, kept trying to get his star, and he didn't have. Uh, the, the friends high enough uh, to get that to happen for him until the very end of the war it did and there were some generals who never got the star or never got the second star um, uh, Alpheus Williams for example never never got the second star he deserved he just didn't have the right pull but uh-huh. eventually uh, of course General uh, Hardin becomes General Hardin and uh, serves at some of the dramatic battles of 1863 and 64 we'll take another short break we'll come right back and talk more about what happened to the general uh during the war and after which we will learn about from our guest james t huffstadt author of lincoln's bold lion the life and times of brigadier general martin davis harden i'm jerry prokopovich and this is civil war talk radio Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu. 
www.prokopowicz.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. Tonight we're talking about Brigadier General Martin Davis Hardin. He's the subject of a biography by Jim Hofstadt, our guest this evening. And we've learned a bit about uh, General Hardin's career and uh, distinguished family up to the Civil War and on into command uh, of the 12th Pennsylvania Regiment. I particularly was interested in the account of, of the regiment uh, of, and, and Hardin's uh, actions at the Second Battle of Bull Run. They were not in the best they, they were not in a good position in that battle. Could you talk about that? Well, yes. Uh, that was uh, the first battle he fought leading that regiment. Uh, and uh, I quote uh, a veteran of the 12th who uh, noted in the letter home, he said, well, we have a new commander. He's a regular, and he seems to look after the troops. Uh, but he uh, he's a regular, and he makes us uh, wash our faces every day and uh, brush our boots uh, twice a day blacken them and brush our coats and I thought, my God, that says something about life in the Army in the 1860s and this guy was upset because he had to wash his face every morning. But uh, anyway, uh, he wondered, well, let's see what he does in battle and Hardin performed very well. Uh, He he was wounded the first day at uh, 2nd Manassas, uh, a very narrow escape. Uh, The uh, bullet uh, creased his uh, his head and his ear, and uh, luckily uh, uh, one of his soldiers had uh, yelled to him. He saw the Confederate rifleman drawing a bead on him. He said, Colonel, look out. And uh, Hardin turned his head at that moment, or that would have ended his career. Uh, the first day I found, uh, researching it, I found it very interesting because it was such uh, confusion. And no one knew what was doing, what was going on. Hardin was in John Reynolds' division, the Pennsylvania Reserves. Reynolds always seemed to be running off trying to get orders: what to do, where, what, where are we going? I mean, that battle, as you know, began when uh, Lee split his forces, sending uh, Stonewall Jackson on this long march, uh, screened behind the mountains, uh, and. Uh, uh, Hardin at that time, he was a young uh, colonel, and uh, he and uh, he was hardly alone. They could see that vast dust cloud as this huge force made its way, and yet they did nothing. And, uh, of course, they didn't like General Pope, uh, the commander, at all, because of his arrogance. Uh, he had issued his, uh, his first order, uh, noting to the Army of the Potomac that... Uh, Western men that he had commanded were used to seeing the backs of their enemies. And, uh, you know, for a commander to insult his men at the beginning is, uh, is unbelievable that he would be so arrogant and so stupid. Uh, they had no faith in him, and it was justified as the later events uh, came about. Uh, the second day, uh, as you know, uh, Jackson had destroyed the uh, the depot uh, at uh, Manassas, and was drawn uh, on a, a very, uh, well, it was a railroad embankment, I think an unfinished railroad, northwest of the old Bull Run battlefield, and was waiting for Pope to discover it. 
And uh, Pope couldn't even do that. He was That was when he was sending units hither and yon. And finally, uh, Jackson had to send a unit out to uh, attack a passing uh, Union uh, unit, I think, on the Warrington Pike. And then uh, General Pope was just uh, constantly, he became, uh, all he could think of is destroying Jackson, who was in a perfectly defense, uh, perfect position, and uh, it was just an endless slaughter. And this went on and on. Uh, the revelation to me, I had read about this battle before, but uh, uh, John Hennessy in his Return to Bull Run is my primary source, and he tells mm-hmm. a, a great story of a very complicated battle. But I always thought that uh, Lee, of course, uh, two days or a day behind, tra- uh, came in and then fell on Pope's flank as he was attacking Jackson uh, in that position. But I didn't realize that it was common knowledge among uh, the Union officers and, and men that uh, that the rest of the Confederate Army was going to appear on their left flank at any time. And uh, when they did, Pope, uh, or actually McDowell, the Corps commander, I believe, had assigned uh, Reynolds' Corps to guard the left flank. Well, uh, Reynolds' division. And really, that wasn't enough. That was south of the Warrington Pike. And then at the last minute, he uh, ordered them to recross the pipe. And uh, by this time, uh, Hardin was commanding a brigade. He'd started out commanding a regiment the day before. Now he was in command of a brigade, perhaps three to 4,000 men. And uh, that's when uh, Longstreet burst out with this uh, tremendous attack led by Hood's Texans. And uh, on his own... Uh, responsibility, uh, Arden uh, turned his brigade around and let them back across the road, and they took a position on a hill near the Chin Ridge, and uh, he had uh, set up a position uh, along with a an artillery battle commanded by Captain Kern, and uh, the first real notice of the advance came as... Uh, New Yorkers, the Zouaves, came running through and around the lines uh, in total retreat. Uh, they, I think there were only two regiments, and they were hit with this enormous force. And then that avalanche of men and, and metal uh, crashed against Arden's, uh, Arden's line, and it was a vicious firefight. And then at uh, the peak of the battle, the artillery commander died at his guns, and uh, uh, Hardin himself was was shot. Uh, he was standing sideways, and the bullet skidded along his chest, uh, uh, struck his uh, left arm, and uh, buried itself really in his shoulder. And uh, he was... Uh, <laughs> it's a miracle he survived. He... He uh, attributed it to the fact that uh, as he was carried off, uh, an aide to General Reynolds uh, spotted him and gave him a shot of whiskey. <laughs> I don't know no, if that didn't did it or not, <laughs> but uh, the poor man, you know, spent nine months recuperating from this. And uh, my understanding, he probably could have resigned from the army at that time, and no one would have uh, would have questioned him. But he came back. And uh, he came back to join them at Gettysburg, and he still was suffering from this wound. His left arm was 
was totally useless. It just hung at his side. And, uh, well, uh, well I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. So, well, well it, he, he, go ahead, please. Well, I was going to say, one of the things that impressed me, he was wounded four times. Twice, mm-hmm. uh, he was considered a dead man. That first time, uh, nine months uh, in agonizing pain, and yet he rejoined his unit. And they were marching to Gettysburg. He joined them on route. He rode up and made that uh, terrible 70-mile march to Gettysburg with the Pennsylvania Reserves. Uh, a hot, white, dusty road, he recalled. And uh, His men were eating cherries. Their mouths stained red with the cherries. And, uh, it, it is a remarkable... Later, I'm sorry, I'm well, going on I, I just wanted... Well, no, I just wanted to make sure we get in a few more uh, bits here as our our time runs short. There's never enough time to to say everything we want to. The uh, the the wounds at, at Second Manassas are terrible, as you point out. He goes on, rejoins the army, fights at Gettysburg, uh, fights at Bristow Station. Uh, he's at Mine Run. He's at all the, the Army of the Potomac's engagements, uh, major ones in 1863. Uh, in the second half of the year, and survives those, and then uh, he gets bushwhacked by uh, uh, by Mosby's men, and gets gets wounded severely again. Uh, yeah, and, and, that and he comes to back the from amputation that amputation of his of his left arm. Mm-hmm. And and, and again, instead back. of retiring, he comes right back. Exactly, exactly. Uh, but there is some circumstantial evidence. When he was recovering from that wound, uh, he uh, he had solicited a letter from General Meade, which was sort of a general recommendation letter. And at the same time, uh, his his uh, division commander, General Crawford, uh, had uh, had uh, written a letter saying that he needed to be uh, medically uh, discharged. And uh, I, I again, this is. Somewhat speculation, but I think it's based on some facts. Uh, I think he was trying to decide what to do, and uh, he faced death on so many occasions. But again, in the final analysis, he rejoined his men uh, while they were on the overland campaign, the bloodiest, most horrendous campaign. Grant was in command then, and uh, all those awful battles. And he joined them at Spotsylvania Courthouse. He was wounded again at North Anna, uh, and then he was at Bethesda Church, just outside Cold Arbor. Cold Arbor occurred, I think, a day or two later after Bethesda Church. And that's when he went to Washington again on medical leave. And uh, and Lincoln uh, personally promoted him. Uh, and uh, in that, uh, he wrote a, Lincoln wrote a, a note on the back of an envelope. And uh, he, in just a few words, he noted that this was a, Son of a dear friend, who had, uh, lost his arm in the service, been shot through the body, and uh, was a West Point graduate, and he wanted his promotion to Brigadier General immediately. And that's when he was put in command of the Northern Defenses of Washington, D.C. So here we're thinking, well, finally he gets a break, a quiet garrison duty in the summer of 64 guarding Washington, D.C., but that doesn't work out that way either. No, it doesn't. Uh, of course, uh, within a week, uh, Early's uh, raid occurs, and uh, uh, he uh, he captures 
there's a, a garrison at Harper's Ferry, he crosses the Potomac, fights a battle at Monocacy, and then uh, there he is, July 11th, and he's right before the Capitol. And uh, what we have to keep in mind is that Grant, in his uh, voracious appetite for men, had stripped the garrison. Uh, Washington was the most fortified city in the world at that time, uh, but it had a few troops. Most of them, the heavy artillerymen, had been converted into infantry and were serving south with Grant. So you had a period of time when the capital, here, remember, this was the summer of 64. The election was in November. Um, if early, again, this is one of the big ifs, if he had been a Jackson, and Hardin, years after the war, said that if Jackson had been in command, they would have taken Washington. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a, a wonderful historian, uh, I think probably the preeminent historian on the early uh, raid and the fortifications of Washington, uh, Benjamin Franklin Cooling. He makes a very strong case that no, uh, because of the losses at Monocacy and the fact that the reinforcement from uh, Grant's Sixth Corps would arrive uh, that morning, virtually, down at the uh, waterfront, that uh, this would have been foolhardy. But you never know. And and men, many men that were there, including Hardin, felt that uh, that was a moment. Again, to remember, Hardin's force, he commanded good provision. Uh, he, they consisted of convalescents, men from the hospitals. Some men had to ride in wagons to the to the outer perimeter of the defenses because they couldn't walk. I mean, uh, others were 90-day Ohio militia. The General Halleck said barely knew how to load their rifles. Uh, it was uh, not a crack force, and Hardin had such respect for the Army of Northern Virginia, and uh, he realized that uh, they were in a very dangerous situation. Uh, the trenches... <laughs> They were indeed. Cases empty, empty of troops. It it would have it could have been a very different outcome certainly. Um, So many other things happened in Hardin's career. He uh, is in charge of helping seal the city after the assassination of Lincoln. Uh, He goes on after the war to uh, rise up in in Gilded Age society to have a very uh, successful uh, time after the war, but. There are many other stories in the book, and unfortunately, we're out of time uh, to talk about them all tonight, but I will recommend listeners, if you want to learn about a a remarkable Civil War figure at the center of a remarkable family, uh, that person is Martin Davis Hardin, uh, the subject of Lincoln's Bold Lion, The Life and Times of Brigadier General Martin Davis Hardin, uh, written by James T. Huffstadt, who has been our guest tonight. Jim, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thank you. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm -hmm.